All right, so let's, um, it's been just a beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, morning. That's what it is, morning, thank you. I'm, I'm a little bit weary. We've had an exciting, it feels like a month, it's been a week, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it in a moment, but um, really wonderful to be here with you all. I'm going to sound these Tibetan bells here in a moment. If you've been here before, you know what we do. If you haven't been here before, you, you're in for a treat. So, um, I'm going to clang these bells, and then I'm going to be quiet for 30 seconds or thereabouts, and then I'm going to sing a song, and you can sing with me if you'd like. If you don't sing, you can listen to the song, and then we're going to pray. But I know what I know is that, you know, we are the vehicle. We are the place where God shows up. And I mean that in all sincerity. I'm not just, that's just not hyperbole. That is the truth of being. Each one, a divine expression of life. So let's welcome that. Here we go. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit. One spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. So know this with me, and I, and I thank you for allowing my words to be your words, and if they don't fit, just let them wash over you. But what I suggest and know and declare and affirm in this moment is there's, a, there's an activity, there's a vibration of the Most High. It is everywhere present, in and through and as all of life. And as I turn towards it, it turns towards me. For I am created from that matter as you are, each and every one of us, here by divine right appointment. Let us stand together in our divinity, in our sovereignty, in the truth of who and what we are and understand that all of it, all of it, that which we love about ourselves, that which we loathe about ourselves, is all here by divine right appointment and that we are here to bring wisdom, clarity, and awareness to all that we are. That we do not cherry pick, we do not label good or bad, but simply understand it is life and it is what I choose to call it that is important. And so I call it good, I call it divine, I call it blessed, I call it source. And I am that clean, hollow vessel of divine creation and receptivity. But even in this moment, I stand in eager anticipation of a great good that is finding its way into my heart, my experience, and my life that is mine and mine alone because no one else can claim it but me. So I stand together this day in that awareness and knowing, and knowing that my thought, my mind, is, is duplicated in the infinite mind of the one. 
and that I am free to choose and entertain and focus on whatever it is that I'm called to focus on. But I bring mastery and awareness to it. I do not waste my time and energy on something that no longer provides benefit for myself, for others, or for the world. I am here as a clean, hollow expression of divine creativity, opportunity, to continue to stand in wholeness and the ever yet to be. For this I give thanks, knowing this day is blessed in every good way, that even now something at a deep level of my being and your being is operating for a great good. And so we nurture that as well. For this I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. All right. Well, here we are. So this month is a month as uh, Maureen's, uh, Marie so beautifully articulated, where light shows up. We are, I am the place where light shows up. So Dr. Holmes said there's an infinite creative intelligence which creates all things by imparting of itself to become that which is created. This creative cause is an indivisible unity. Look at it. This is so good today, people are even moving closer. I like that. Awesome. Thank you, guys. It's awesome. There's an infinite creative intelligence which creates all things by imparting of itself to become that which is created. This creative cause is an indivisible unity. So that is one of the premises that, that all great mystical, the perennial truth, those that teach a perennial truth, which is that, that God is everywhere present in and through and has all of life, would, would resonate with. And so I want to talk about... Um, light today, but actually what I want to talk about, because in order to have light, we have to have shadow. You can't have one without the other. And so I want to, talk, I want to start uh, today with a, a story that I think is significant, and I think it, it lends itself to this idea of light and dark. And I want to address this idea of shadow today, because shadow is very, very important. It is. It is. I love you too. So, oh, before we go there, she reminded me. And what's her name again? Freya? Oh, okay, good. In case I have to talk to her, I can address her. So with babies, um, I know a number of you know that uh, last Sunday about 11 o'clock, Laura got a text and said, come on over to our house. And our daughter-in-law and and son, uh, she she was six months pregnant at the time, had gone into early labor. And so last Sunday night, 6 o'clock, um, gave birth to a three-month uh, early uh, premature baby, which was very exciting for us because none of us were anticipating that. And, uh, and so a number of people have been in prayer around that. Um, it's a day-to-day thing with a preemie, if you know. Um, she's doing well. The breathing tube they put in to help her with her lungs has been removed because she's breathing pretty well on her own now, and we're happy about that. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, so it's all of the, and all of the kind of things that we are concerned about seem to be improving. So as far as tracking, she's doing great. And I think she was just impatient to get here, so she didn't need another three months. She said, I'm ready to go. I'm good to go now. But thank you for your prayers. It's been an exhausting week. I feel like it's been a month. Uh, We all do, and Laura's been, uh, uh, we've been taking care of our other granddaughter, while uh, their older daughter, while they've been at the hospital with um, Julia Carroll is her name. So anyway, I um, wanted to just give you an update on that. But I want to share with you a story about a Japanese priest that I think is a wonderful illustration of this idea of shadow. And it comes from a book by Robert Johnson called Owning Your Own Shadow. It's a wonderful little book. 
Shadow work is so important. And I think it's one of the pitfalls in new thought that we sometimes overlook, that we don't have to look there because I got firm to prayer. Well, the totality of us is the light and the dark. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, I, the um, yin and yang symbol, it's light and dark, it's the, it's the two pieces. So anyway, as this story goes, there was a Japanese priest in a, in a little village in Japan and this young girl in the village got pregnant. And so there was no husband. They couldn't figure out, the parents and the rest of the villagers couldn't figure out how this young woman became pregnant. And so uh, after a bit of time, the young girl kind of caved into the pressure and she pointed over at the priest and said it was him. And so they were just appalled that the priest would behave in such a way, and this is scandalous and awful. And, and so they walked over to him, and they confronted him and said, how could you do this? And you're the father of this baby. And, and then the priest looked at him and said, ah, so. And so time went by, and the baby was born, and, and the people were you know, really holding this guy in a, in a real low opinion. And he was helping out with the baby and providing resources and and care and finally one day after months had gone by a young man came into the village and proposed marriage to this woman it turns out over time that that he was the father of the baby and so people went over to the priest and said well why didn't you so you're not the father of the baby and you never said anything when we accused you of that and he just said ah so and so it, what happened in this, as Robert Johnson articulates, is this story shows the power of waiting while others do their shadow work. The priest did the villagers a great service by his silence. By not protesting or denying the situation, he left enough room for the people to work the problem out amongst themselves. They later had to ask, why were, you so, why were we so ready to believe the girl? Why did we side against the priest and how do we face the discomfort and anxiety we feel within ourselves? Such things can only be accomplished if our own shadow is reasonably well in hand and we are not tempted to plan our own retaliation. We must remember how easy it is to give a gift and then spoil it with some shadow quality that is lurking in the background. We are advised to love our enemies, but this is not possible when the inner enemy, our own shadow, is waiting to pounce and make the most of an incendiary situation. If we can learn to love the inner enemy, then there is a chance of loving and redeeming the outer one. I think that is so significant. That is so significant because, man, this is where the work gets done. I'm telling you, and, and the week that we've had and the things that have kind of come into my awareness as a result of, of um, you know, when, you, when, you, when all of a sudden, you think you've got important things going on in your life and then all of a sudden uh, a baby shows up three months earlier, it puts everything in a different perspective. It's like, oh, okay, I get this now. This is, this is real life here now. And it's been great. It's, it's wonderful to watch. And the thing about two of the preemie baby is it's just ongoing. It's day to day. There's no finish line. It's not like, oh, we get here. Nope, this goes on for quite a long time. So it's a new normal. But it does redefine, I guess, priorities and the way you value things in the world. But what I want to share with you today is, is um, um, uh, some of the work of Carl Jung. Because I think Carl Jung, he's one of my heroes. And he was... Um, great, great uh, therapist, writer, researcher. I mean, his whole life was committed to living an authentic life, being himself. And the stories are legendary about how he operated. And if you're ever interested, he's got some wonderful, there's wonderful books out there about him. But Carl Jung was born in 1875 in Switzerland. And he was born to a very rigid 
theological family. They were very traditional. Six people on his mother's side were theologians and two on his father's side. So a rich history of the traditional Christian church there in Switzerland and very, very formal and, and, you know, and tight and, and rigid in terms of their approach to the world and spirituality. And it wasn't big enough for him. As a kid, he started having these amazing dreams and they were big dreams. And he, he, he just didn't know what to do with them because he couldn't share it with anybody. There was nobody in his immediate surroundings that he could share his dreams with. And so he didn't. So he went along and he got educated, brilliant student, excelled within all of his classes, graduated from university, and then he decided, to the dismay of many, that he was going to go into psychiatry, which was like nobody at that point in time went into psychiatry. And his, the friends were dismayed, like, what's up with this guy? You're going to be a psychiatrist? It had no credibility at that point in time. But anyway, he got into it. He was called to it. And, and so, but what he said is my main interest is mainly spiritual. So for many people that aren't interested in spirituality, as therapists, Young's kind of out there. And what he said about it is the main interest of my work is not concerned with the treatment of neurosis, but rather the approach to the numinous, numinous. And numinous indicates the presence of divinity. So he was always, he was always about the mystical. He was also about the, the, what was alive in his environment. And so he, that, was what, that was the key to his therapy. And he had four key elements to his teaching. He said, number one, and you'll see him up on the screen behind me here, he said, we need to become our complete selves to live as whole human beings. We need to become our complete selves to live as whole human beings. That's tough, but we do. I would agree with that. And his whole thing, his emphasis was on wholeness. He didn't emphasize perfection. Perfection is a male quality. But he emphasized wholeness. See, and he worked primarily with females, which taught him a lot. Because he had a problem. He had an abandonment issue with his own mother because she was ill when he was a boy. He was the only child for nine years. But mom wasn't a real nurturer. And so he got an opportunity to heal some of that self within, him, within himself. He he was the one that defined anima and animus. And so those are qualities, the feminine in the man and the female and the, the the feminine in the man and the male and the female. Because we need to be in that balance as well, the yin and the yang. So he said, we need to become our complete selves to live as whole human beings. Number two, the complete self lives naturally in two worlds. The outer materialistic and the inner spiritual one. So it's not either or, it's both. And Holmes writes about that as well. It's we are mosaic. Many people will tell you it's all the material world that's important, and many will tell you it's a spiritual. And so it is, the, it is that coming together. Number three, the spiritual source of life needs humanity to mirror its creation in consciousness and help it evolve further. So we are here as a vehicle of creation in consciousness for the evolution of the infinite. And the fourth one is the whole human being is open to the divine as co-creator. We are here in co-creation. So I would say all of those ideas that he, were the key elements would agree in some capacity with Dr. Ernest Holmes, who called our approach spiritual psychology as well. And, and Jung was so spiritually based, it's, and I'm sure that Holmes studied him prolifically. You know, they were contemporaries. For many years, he, 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 he did his work, and then he read Sigmund Freud's um, Interpretation of Dreams. And so he was intrigued by it, and he loved the work, and he wrote to Freud, and he said, uh, you know, there's some of my stuff, and he shared with him some of his writings. 
and they developed a relationship. First time they met in person, they, they had a 13-hour conversation. So there was obviously some connection that they had. And then after a while, what happened was that um, um, the dreams started coming back for Young, that he'd had as a young boy, it had stopped for a while. And as the dreams showed up and, he was, and things were starting to open up in him, he started to disagree with some of the things that Freud put forth because Freud was all about interpretation of dreams and Young and he started to part ways. They started to disagree. But one, one thing that happened to him, in 1913, he was struck by a horrific vision of Europe being devastated. He saw blood everywhere, he saw destruction, he, saw, he kept having this vision and he thought, I'm losing my mind. I don't know what this is all about, but I feel like I'm going mad, like a number of his, his uh, people he has, was working with at the time, his clients. And then in 1914, the First World War broke out. And what he realized, it was a, a vision of what was coming, that it was, a, it was a, a clairvoyant experience of seeing something that was in the future. Because the voice kept saying to him every time he had the dream, pay attention, this is coming, this is going to happen. But he didn't know where to put it. And what happened with that experience was he started to trust his own sense of clairvoyance, his own, his own uh, listening to his inner voice, and uh, it, it helped shift things for him. He started trusting himself. So I think part of it is just to realize that to give an insight into trusting our intuition is so important for all of us because we are immersed in the thing itself. We are it, individualized. So in how do we develop and reveal our wholeness that, that, that um, Jung talked about? And part of it is meeting our shadow. A portion of his meeting our shadow. I've got a slide of, of, uh, of the Hindu tradition. Hindus have a, uh, uh, three gods there. Brahma is the god on the left of creation. And Shiva is on the right. She's the goddess of destruction. And in the middle sits Vishnu. And Vishnu holds the balance. But the Hindus have known this stuff forever. I mean, they just, they give qualities to, of God to various gods. But they believe in, they're, they're not, it's confusing for people. Because they have hundreds of gods but the idea being that there's a balance there's the there's the creation and there's the destruction both oldest known religion on the planet they understood this centuries ago and taught it but what we don't know about ourselves is that, so our shadow is that part of us that, that we we don't like about ourselves the aspect of shadow is that piece we don't like about ourselves we may not know about ourselves it may be part of what we don't want to know about ourselves and the other big piece, which is the story of the priest comes in, is that it's also with shadow when it's unresolved, when we are not at peace with it, when we don't understand it, we will take those unresolved issues that we have within ourselves and project them on others. It's, it happens everywhere, all the time. And we've, we've decided that it's okay. That's just the way of life. I will tell you something, I, not a judgment, but Donald Trump is not in high relationship with his shadow, okay? When you see somebody pointing fingers all the time and blaming, they've got, they've got shadow issues that are unresolved. In Robert uh, Johnson's book, Owning Your Own Shadow, he says this, any repair of our fractured world must start with individuals who have the insight and courage to own their own shadow. The priest, the, the priest in the Japanese village had enough of a handle on his shadow where when they came and they accused him of things he hadn't done, he could say, okay, because he knew it had nothing to do with him. See, that's my hero. 
That's where I want to stand. I want to stand in that. Point and finger out? Thank you. I love Jiminy Gleck. You know uh, Martin Short's Jiminy Gleck? Ever seen Jimmy, Jiminy Gleck do an interview? I love Martin Short. He's just, he's just a comedic genius. But he's got that character, Jiminy Glick, and he's so obnoxious. And they asked him, why did you develop this character? And he says, well, I always loved morons with power. <laughs> but anyway, so he'll be doing an interview. And I, I watched him interviewing Larry Charles, who wrote, um, I think he wrote Steinfeld and a few other things. And he's asking him all these obnoxious questions. And so Larry Charles is like, you are, you are obnoxious. You're stupid. You're an idiot. You're a slob. On and on and on with all these insults. And Jiminy sits there and he goes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I mean, he's just... I mean, in a, in a sense, because he's actually achieving his goal because he, he wants to be obnoxious. <laughs> so the more insults he hears, like, well, I'm, I'm achieving my purpose. But the point being, and I know it's, it's, a, it's a, um, um, a poor example, but it is about, you know, how we hold ourselves in the world and understand when people are coming at us. And I really think that this is so important. And why I'm motivated by this as I read this passage to you is, so we are in the throes of last week. We get done with service. Laura took off early. I don't know where she went. I'm like, hey, anybody seen my wife? She's gone. You know, usually she hangs out a bit and we connect before we head home because we typically travel in two different vehicles. And um, so she had gone to the, to the hospital and all this stuff happened and it was quite a, you know, there's so much of uncertainty. So you're kind of in that state of, oh, golly, what's next? But anyway, extraordinary me- measures. These nurses, this tribe of nurses, just, oh. I came out of the room because there were so many people in the room after the delivery. We got there after the baby had been born, and they were, had the baby in the room next door. But I went out, and I said, I need to use the restroom, but I didn't want to be, there was everybody in the room, so I was going to go down the hallway and just stretch my legs a little. And I came out of the room, and it was right by the nurse's station. And so it was very quiet there, other than, I guess, what we were doing. So about 15 nurses there in the, in the um, birth area, uh, labor area, and they all were like, all look up at me like this, like prairie dogs sticking their heads out of the hole, like, what do you need? And I'm like, no, it's good, I'm just going to the restroom. But they were all like on high, you know, just ready there to serve in any way they could. Extraordinary experience, all this care that goes into one life. Just like, I mean, this is new to us, but there's a nurse there 24-7 for that baby. Three nurses, round the clock. It's like, I mean, if this kid chose to be born early, what better country to do it in than this one? Oh my God. That Royal Alex Hospital is the go-to place in Western Canada for premature babies. It's 10 minutes from here. I'm talking, oh my God, what a blessing. And in this tribe of women, man, that they're going to support life. Then I'm driving here yesterday, and on the radio is Don Iveson, and he's talking about Vancouver, and they're talking about the epidemic of opiates that are killing people. Nine people last week in Vancouver OD'd. And then we got a call from Fort Simpson. One of our members' sister passed away. Turns out that she had taken her own life. The sixth suicide in Fort Simpson this year. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, what is wrong with this picture? What, is, what has happened? That we will go to these extraordinary lengths for a preemie baby. And I'm so happy we do. And yet, nine people living on, probably on the streets in Vancouver, gone. Six people up in Fort Simpson, gone. And that's just a small sample. What is it as a culture? Where have we lost our way? I mean, I think, I think our, our spiritual communities have failed so many people because they've taken the treasures, and I, and I don't mean to be critical, but man, something's missing. 
I think Carl Jung is right, that you've got to understand the spiritual nature of who you are and move into wholeness. And part of that is understanding that we all have shadows. But what we've done with people, I was raised in a tradition that it was this idea of original sin, that you show up with, with strikes against you because you are by nature evil. And that is a, still a very popular idea. But where does it take us? How does that, how does that assist us? I don't think it does. And so I'm best, I, I was just, wow, how does this happen? All these extraordinary resources for one life, and then these other lives are not, something's missing. Where are we not conveying this through our education, through mentoring and nurturing? We don't have to convert anybody. But would it be helpful to say to people that are suffering from addiction, you know what, we know you got a problem, but there's ways through this because your soul's eternal. Because you can turn the lights off on yourself and you're just going to pick it up again because that's the nature of the way the soul works. So you might as well get on board with the process now is my feeling about it. But to me, to look at that and realize, so what happens is, is we somehow take on the belief that we're not worthy, we're not good enough, because someone else has said that to us, probably, for a variety of reasons. And then if we play that out long enough and hard enough and abuse ourselves enough, we finally just say, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't any fun. It's heartbreaking. And so one of the things that inspired me this week where I wanted to talk about this stuff is I think it's so important to realize we all have shadows. We all get upset. There's things about ourselves we don't like and there's times when we get trapped in the projection of others. But the great thing about this path, for me anyway, is to have the awareness and the understanding so I don't make a lifestyle out of it. I can bring myself back. I got into the worry with the baby. You know, both Laura and I were just, we didn't know what to do for like three or four days and there's nothing you can do, but you wait. And, and, and I'm so grateful for the prayers from this community because, I don't know, it was about Wednesday? I mean, that was like, it felt like a month, but it was like two days in, three days in, and it just fell into me, this grace and this knowing. But I had to do my spiritual practice because I was, up until that point, I was, I was in the worry and, you know, chewing my nails and pulling my hair out. And I realized, I'm not helping anybody. You know, walk your talk, buddy. Get your big boy pants on. Let's, you know, let's practice the principle. But I got to tell you, I went there, and then all of a sudden, it was like something just landed. It was like, oh, this is beautiful. And I was so grateful for this teaching and this tradition. And to have the perspective of, I'm going to look at this from 30,000 feet and realize this baby that I'm very attached to because everybody that I love in my life closely, they're attached to it, and I want the best for them, and I want the best thing for the baby. This baby has an eternal soul. It's always been and always will be. And I'm hoping that I get to see it flourish and, and create and live a life. But if it doesn't, I'm still going to love it. And who am I to say that this baby is going to live from now till 95? Me, in my own opinion. But that, that child, that soul has a purpose too. So to have a perspective of the eternality and the possibilities and the opportunity to know, well, so what can I do? I can be in prayer and I can see perfect health. I can practice all the things I've been trained for years to do and stay with that. And when I start to waver, I come back. So it's been a really, really fascinating journey, but I'm really grateful to have this, this uh, teaching. What a blessing, because I didn't get this when I was a kid. Carl Jung had a heart attack when he was 69, changed his entire life. He had a near-death experience. It opened him up in ways. See, he was a wounded healer. A lot of the theme around Jung is wounded healer because of the healing that went on for him. 
But wounded healer, what happens with a wounded healer is they go through their own healing so they can come back and hold the door open for the rest of us. And that's powerful. He did the work. He was, he was Carl Jung. He said, I am not here to create another ism. If I do that, I will have failed. I'm here to be the person that I was supposed to be. Isn't that nice? Doesn't that take the pressure off? We don't have to save anybody. We just have to give birth to the person we're supposed to be. So I'll continue here. Any repair of our fractured world must start with individuals who have the insight and the courage to own their own shadow. Nothing out there will help if the interior projecting mechanism of humankind is operating strongly. The tendency to see one shadow out there is one's neighbor or in another aspect, race or culture, is the most dangerous aspect of the modern psyche. The most dangerous aspect. It has created two devastating wars in this century and threatens the destruction of all the fine achievements of our modern world. This is how wars get started, gang. The collective unconscious, the collective unknown shadow, we're seeing it right now with, the, with the, what's happening in the United States with Muslims. The projection upon a group and make them bad and wrong rather than own our own part in it and realize, wait a minute here, what's mine in this? Why am I, why am I fanning the, the, the flames of fear? But this happens all the time. We all decry war, but collectively we move towards it. It is not the monsters of the world who make such chaos, but the collective shadow to which every one of us has contributed. World War II gave us an endless example of shadow projection. One of the most highly civilized nations on earth, Germany, fell into the idiocy of projecting its virulent shadow on the Jewish people. The world has never seen the equal of this kind of destruction, and yet we naively think we have overcome it. At the beginning of 1990, with the collapse of the Berlin Wall and a new relationship with the Soviet Union, we entered a brief period of euphoria and were convinced that we had left the dark days behind. It seems nothing less than a miracle that the shadow projection between the United States and the Soviet Union had subsided after years of the Cold War. Yet here is an example of what human creativity can do. We unconsciously picked up the energy released from this relationship and put the shadow in another place. I mean, isn't that, I mean, it's sad, but it's so poignant to understand how we create these things. And we do it person by person. See, I want to be that Japanese priest in my life. I want to be able to look at the world with great compassion. I want to be able to stand like I did with my granddaughter and want the best hoping for the best but prepared to understand that this is eternal and something beautiful is happening here, whatever it may be. And to realize that when the, when the, when the anger starts and the finger pointing starts, that, that that's unresolved stuff with other people. How do we stand in that? That's, that's, the, the, that's the opportunity and the challenge. But we have people right now that are in charge, that are pointing fingers, placing blame, Let's get out of the Paris Accord, you know, because it's all about us. I mean, that's all that unresolved stuff. See, because ego and shadow, as is, is Robert uh, Johnson points out in this book, and Carl Jung said, ego and shadow are, are, are partners. And so, it's, it, and so when we develop that ego to the point and we, and we press down the shadow, all of a sudden it becomes larger and larger and larger, and there's an energy there. So how do we drain that? Because part of managing it is just working with it and realize, you know what, I got some shadow stuff going here. Having an awareness to say, you know what, this is shadow stuff getting triggered in me. I need to get away from people and go deal with this. I need to call so-and-so and get something done spiritually here. We do that releasing prayer here. 
which seems kind of silly to some people, but it is actually an opportunity to drain some of that energy. I release my need to be angry. I release my need to feel persecuted, and I'm grateful that Christ, or Jesus Christ is the love that I am, whatever, whatever words you use. But it's a mudra. You do it 70 times at a time, eight minutes. There's a simple little practice. I worked with a counselor when I was in L.A., and I was going through a tough time. She told me to go home and beat up on a pillow because there were a lot of people I wanted to beat up. So I went home, and I worked over the pillow. See, there's ways to manage it. It seems silly, but you've got to put that energy somewhere. You've got to drain it. You've got to manage it. But when we understand, when we can say to one another, that's your shadow stuff, then maybe we don't have nine people ODing because what, what happens with a drug addiction? Life is so painful. Life is so painful. I don't want to live anymore. I want to numb myself out. Now, I got to tell you, when this was going on with the baby, Sunday night, I thought, man, oh, man, I'm just ready to go get drunk here. I didn't. But I thought about numbing myself out. I was like, hmm, what is going on here? And that wasn't going to help anything. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't think, oh, well, I'd like some relief from this. So those things, I mean, that's part of having a, a spiritual practice in your life. Dr. Holmes said we must look at a thing long enough until it no longer has power over us. And I think he was addressing shadow. Looking at those unresolved, unhealed aspects of ourselves and understanding it's okay. When we talk about, see, I think one of the things we do when we talk about perfection, I like, I like Young's idea of wholeness. Because perfection is this, it's a fantasy. What is perfect? There's a, there's a piece of life within me that I know is, is wholeness but I've used perfection many times. And the distinction is just like, it's ongoing. See, there's a great, there's a great old story of the, and I, um, uh, a guy from the United States is over in Ireland. He's up in Connemara, and it's beautiful up there, and they got these beautiful rolling hills, and it's all green. And he's standing at this stone wall, and he's talking to this old Irishman. And so the, the guy from the U.S. says, so have you lived your whole life here? And the Irishman looks at him, and he says, well, we don't know yet. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. We don't know yet. But when we can understand and celebrate the mystery, I mean, now I'm sort of intrigued to see what's going to happen with this little baby. I've heard so many great stories of preemies, and everyone I know has got a great story about preemie. I'm like, yeah, I'll go with that. It's great. So then I can live in that anticipation. So my dream is shifted around this whole thing, my expectation, but it's, it's life-affirming. We cannot make light without the darkness. No one escapes the dark side of life, but we can, pay, we can play out the dark side intelligently. We can do it intelligently when we understand it. It's information we need, and we need to encourage one another. Just because we, we have areas in our lives that feel unfulfilled or broken doesn't make us broken. It's why we've come. Teresa's got a book in the bookstore called Pull Out Your uh, Skele uh, Skeletons. What is it? Love your skeletons. It's all about shadow stuff. She's, on, she's signing books today back there. So we got it in the bookstore. Yeah, love your skeletons. We all got them. But wouldn't it be nice if kids got this in school? I mean, what would it take to just say to kids when they're little, like, look, you're going to have things about yourself you're not going to like. And you're going to find other people you're not going to like. But the thing about you don't like about other people is something that's alive in you that you don't like about them. I mean, how hard is that? You know? I mean, it's just, let's... let's Let's nurture our children in a way that's intelligent and wise and trust them and empower them to make choices, healthy choices. 
and to let them know, you know what, you got all that stuff going too, but you are so equipped to thrive, to create, and to be a force for good upon this planet. And you get a handle on that, and you don't let that distract you the rest of your life, because what happens is people get a hold of that idea that are not enough, and they start to get into the addiction, and it's, it's over for them. Then all of a sudden, well, I can't do that because I'm, I'm addicted. Oh, golly. I don't know. I just get, I watched the, the two ends of the spectrum this week, and I'm just like, what are we missing? Because it isn't that hard. And you don't have to give up being a, a Jew or a Catholic or a Christian to understand this. No one has to take your religion away from you. But let's give you something, the truth of your being. As, as Jung talked about it, this, the whole self, the light and the dark. I mean, that's the way nature lives. Nature lives in polarity. It's light and dark. It's creation and destruction. It's up and down. It's male and female. It's not surprising that we have the same basic laws in psychology. In Germany, there's a term doppelganger. You know what doppelganger is? Doppelganger means one mere image, one's opposite. Gert was profoundly affected. Gert was an author and great thinker and wonderful, wonderful um, mind. Gert was profoundly affected when he approached his home one evening and was met by a vision of his doppelganger. So he's going home and all of a sudden he sees a vision of himself coming towards him. He said, few of us have so vivid an experience of our shadow, but whether we know it or not, psychic twins follow us like a mirror image. Carl Jung in his book talks about he had a dream where he was holding this little white light and this imposing black thing was chasing him. And he woke up from the dream and he realized the light was his consciousness and the big imposing thing was his shadow. But I mean, his whole life was around this embracing the shadow and the archetypes and understanding and bringing intelligence to it and awareness and consciousness to it. What a gift this guy was. I mean, he, he is one of my heroes. He was interested in the numinous presence of divinity. The, the evolution of consciousness requires us to integrate the shadow if we are to produce a new age. It's key. We're going to produce a new age. It's integrating the shadow. It's not getting a hold of an affirmation and doing spiritual bypass. It's understanding, wow, this is alive in me. How do I work with this? Because that's an amazing energy. That is a force of, of possibility and creativity once we harness it. But if we push it away or we numb it out, we never get to see the gift because we think there's something wrong. And as long as we think there's something wrong, there's something wrong because we always get what we believe. So how can we frame it in a way that's real and authentic and empowering and filled with grace and wisdom and it's going to be uncomfortable to look at it at times? But to understand we are so equipped for this. You're not in this room with me. I was not guided to this material by mistake. You guided me to this material. And my experience this week guided me to this because my heart was so broken looking at the paradox of this, this beautiful little potential and all these resources, I mean, I am so grateful I'm not in the U.S. right now and having this happen with a grandchild because it would put us into bankruptcy. I'm telling you. It's probably 10 grand a day. That baby's going to be in the hospital for 90 days till she reaches full term. Three nurses a day. And there's every machine possible. And some, you know, I'm down there. What's that mean? What's that mean? I mean everything beeping and popping. and I mean, just amazing. So all these extraordinary means. And then... Life is just tossed away on the other end. We have to have rituals in our lives that honor and help release that shadow energy. We have to. 
It's got to be part of our spiritual practice. Now, there's another piece of the shadow that is important, too. It's called the golden shadow. We all have a golden shadow, too. And that, sh- that piece is the gifts that you and I haven't developed. That's that divine discontent of what wants to happen here, the greater yet to be. It's the characteristics we haven't brought forward, but we need to develop. And it's also in that reign of the golden shadow, our projection then becomes on, on heroes. You know, I, I could have a hero projection with Carl Jung. A young man that's a, you know, a, a striving hockey player could have a hero worship of Wayne Gretzky. But that's the other piece of it. It's called the golden shadow. Carl Gustav Jung said, to own one's own shadow is to reach a holy place. To own one's own shadow, to reach a holy place. An inner center, not attainable in any other way. To fail this is to fail one's own sainthood and to miss the purpose of life. We're in saint school. That's what I love about that Japanese monk. Ah, so. Isn't that a great story? I'm going to get me a kimono and do the next talk on a kimono. (laughs) To own one's own shadow is to reach a holy... And it just takes courage. It takes... Wow, look at this. Look what's getting triggered now. Holy cow. But I know what to do. I know who to call. I know what ritual to perform. Ritual is very important, but it's important that it's meaningful for you and me. I have little rituals I do because they drain energy and they, they, they transmute things that are going on. Dr. Ernest Holmes said, the only shadow we cast is of ourselves. This shadow lengthens as we realize the great presence in which we live, move, and have our being. That shadow becomes more vast and grand. He says that he continues in the, in the uh, Science of Mind textbook here, page 368 and 69 in Finding the Christ, my favorite chapter in the book. We give only what we have. The only shadow we cast is of ourselves, and this shadow lengthens as we realize the great presence in which we live, move, and have our being. Who would entertain the Christ? must invite him. He does not come unbidden, nor sit at any man's table as unwelcome guest. Neither does the divine presence force itself upon any. It stands at the door and knocks, and we must open it if we are to receive. I'll tell you what, if we aren't at home and at peace with the wholeness that we are and got a handle on our shadow, we ain't opening no door. You can do all the affirmative prayers till the cows come home and nothing's going to shift. This is important stuff. Really important stuff. Holmes called this spiritual psychology for a reason because he knew how impactful the psychological was to the spiritual. That there, there, there's a mosaic there. And the more that we can look at things and find creative ways to manage the energy and to manage those unhealed and unresolved issues within ourselves. Then we begin to cast a longer shadow. And who knows what could happen. But I tell you, every time I hear that nine people OD'd in Vancouver, I'm like, man, oh man, how do we get to there? How, do we, how, did, how did those souls... I, and I realize they're eternal, but to me it just seems like we could do this better. And it's one by one, as Robert John, um, is. As Robert Johnson says in this book, it is one by one. 
Any repair of our fractured world must start with individuals who have the insight and courage to own their own shadow. So I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But thank you for being willing to even hear this and to look at it and figure out ways that we can all own our own shadows more effectively and to be the presence, the divine presence that is seeking expression, seeking creativity and co-creation by means of us. It is so important. I want to thank you for your prayers this week with that little baby. I could feel them. It was just like about Wednesday afternoon. It all dropped in and it was just like, oh my gosh, it's a, just a field of love. I could feel it everywhere I went. So there's an energy to it that is beautiful and wonderful. And I thought, if we can do that around this little kid, couldn't we do that for one another? Couldn't we start to build that container of unconditional love for the world? And perhaps over time, with practice, we can start to shift and change some of these false ideas and misidentities that people destroy themselves over. Because we always get what we believe. We can always choose a new way to believe. Why not believe something interesting and life-giving and affirmative and joy-filled and creative and loving and beautiful? And we awaken to that world that works for everyone. So blessings and thanks for being here today. And so it is.